Good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading uh, 2 Corinthians together. That is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, because something bad had happened between him and his friends at the church that he founded there in Corinth. And so he wrote this letter uh, to foster reconciliation with them, uh, to deepen reconciliation with them, and to answer lingering and hurtful questions uh, about his leadership. So we're going to start reading again where we left off in chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 7 through 18. And uh, like a lot of Paul, this is uh, a dense argument, so you might want to follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed. This is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 18. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, as we talk about and think about this word that we have just read together, that this ancient chant of the church that we just sang together would be true, that you would give our jaded senses light, that you would come to us by your Spirit, through the light of your Son, to show us your grace and your mercy and your goodness to us, and to change us by it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my my favorite window in our church is that one right there. Um, I know that not a lot of you can see it from where you're sitting, and I'm sorry about that. You can always come up and take a, a, a peek at that window later. Um, for a long time, a long time ago, the, the pastors used to sit over here behind the musicians. And so for a long time, that was the, the main window that I looked at, and I kind of became fond of it. There are a couple of things that I like about that window. Uh, the first thing is that Jesus is uh, centered in it, and all around him is this colorful cast of characters. And... Uh, you know, some of them are regarding him in that, in that window. They're regarding him with wonder and with adoration, just like you would expect in a stained glass window. But there are other people in it, four or five people in it, both women and men, who are not regarding him at all. They're not even looking at him. <laughs> and that feels very uh, earthy and true, not only to what we read in the Gospels, 
um, but to our own experience from time to time. There's the second thing I like about this window, uh, and that is that way, way back in the background, far to the right, as far to the right as the frame will allow, there are two little guys on top of a small hill. You can't even make out their faces. Really, they're just shapes. And one of them is holding some stone tablets up above his head. He's kind of waving them around. It is Moses. And of course, he's holding the Ten Commandments. And I'm pretty sure that the little guy next to him is Elijah, the two people that we uh, heard about in the gospel lesson that Sarah just read for us, the two people who were with Jesus and then went away. So Moses, Moses is a towering figure in the history of God's people. He is the one who led our mothers and fathers in the faith out of slavery in Egypt. He's the one who pleaded with God for mercy when our mothers and fathers in the faith, faith messed up. Moses, you know, had his faults for sure, but in, in the history of God's people, there's almost no one like him. Exodus 33 says that God used to speak to Moses face to face like a man speaks with his friend. That is a, an incredibly uh, astounding thing. Moses was a big deal. His work was incredibly important. But there he is in that window, so small, so marginalized, that you can barely make him out. You can barely tell who he is. And I want to tell you, church, that that was this artist's way of capturing our imaginations with the reality that undergirds the part of the letter that we just read together. As Paul uh, puts it in verse 14, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Paul is comparing Moses' work with the work of the one who is at the center of that window, with Jesus, whose ministry to people like us offers forgiveness and freedom, and the power to change. So I know that that passage that we just read together goes in and out. It's kind of complicated, but at the bottom of it, that is the point that Paul is making. The first was great, but the second is even greater. Paul is telling his friends at Corinth, and he's telling us that to regard Jesus with wonder and with adoration is to be changed into the people that we were created to be. And I think that is probably one of the most important things people like us can know. <laughs> it's one of the most important things any human being can know. All right, so why is Paul saying these things? Why is he writing about this stuff? Well, it's good to remember that Paul doesn't write uh, abstract theological essays. He writes real letters to real people with real things happening in their lives. And in this case, he's writing as someone who has an intimate history with these people and a deep affection for these people. His back is against the wall. That's the truth. His back is against the wall because there are some folks at Corinth who are questioning his leadership, and they're questioning it because he is not like they are. All right, his accusers have come backed by wealthy and powerful patrons. They have come with well-honed rhetorical skills. They've come really with all of the credentials that a cosmopolitan, newly wealthy city like Corinth values. They are religious elites 
they are beautifully cultivated influencers. And then there is Paul. He came backed by nobody. He's talking about the cross all of the time. Talking about suffering way too much. And to top it all off, Paul lets himself get pushed around. He's always in some terrible situation, some shipwreck, some beating. He's always in prison. He is not a very glorious guy. Paul is a weak guy. So in part, Paul writes this letter and this part of the letter to regain some footing as a trusted leader. But he doesn't do it by trying to out-elite the elites. He does it by challenging the values that make his friends admire the elites in the first place. He does it by challenging our values, the things we care about. And he's teaching them that our suffering, our weakness, and our trouble are the places where God's glory and grace are most clearly seen in this life. Our suffering, our trouble, our weakness, these are the places where God's glory and grace are most clearly seen in this life because these are the places in our lives that carry the lingering scent of Jesus' life, the lingering fragrance of his life given for the life of the world. And so what Paul is saying is, look, if if my life looks like that, then it's okay. If your life looks like that, then it's okay. Because the cross is the most important value. The cross is the thing that you stake everything on. So if you were here last week, you might remember um, that Paul has just written to his friends that he doesn't need letters of recommendation because they are his letters of recommendation. He doesn't need some powerful, wealthy person to back him because their changed lives are the letter that speaks to the whole world. And there's something about that word, something about the word letter that sets Paul off and he starts going in a completely new direction that doesn't have anything at all to do with letters of recommendation. And this is why uh, reading Paul is so challenging. This is why reading Paul is so stretching. Uh, And it's hard to do sometimes because his digressions have digressions (laughs) and they're hard to follow. And the next thing you know, you're staring down a profound truth about what it means to be a human in this world. And that's what happens here. So Paul moves from these letters of recommendation to, as he puts it in verse 7, letters that are carved on stone. So Paul is now thinking about the law and Moses giving the law, and in particular, about that beautiful and strange story from Exodus 34 that we just heard in our Old Testament lesson. So here's what's going on in that story. Just prior to it, Moses had been telling God, God, I want to lead the people, but I don't know if I apprehend you enough. I don't know if I really know you enough. And so he says, God, show me your glory. He's asking God to deepen his his sense of him, to somehow communicate to him the weight of his being, (laughs) which is honestly an amazing and very terrifying thing to ask. Because in Scripture, over and over again, when people just get, get the tiniest glimpse of who God is, when they begin to just apprehend the teeniest little bit of who he is, they usually fall apart and feel like they're gonna die. 
and God knows this. And so here's what he does. He, he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and he covers Moses and he passes by and he lets Moses just see the trailing edge of his glory. Just the fading back edge of the weight of his being. And it's enough. <laughs> it's enough for Moses. And he, and he comes back down off the mountain. He comes with the Ten Commandments. Moses is ready to resume doing his job. And it's almost comical, comical because he has no idea, no idea at all that his face is shining because this has just happened to him. The people are terrified. It's completely understandable. And so Moses has to veil his face until things return to normal. <laughs> and so Paul's first point is really very simple. That was glorious. <laughs> that was amazing. When Moses gave God's law to his people, that was a glorious thing. And not only because of the whole shining face and cleft in the rock and trailing edge of the glory stuff, that's not the only thing that made it glorious. The law itself is this glorious thing. And this church is really, really important because for God's people to get the law was for God to reveal a little bit more of himself to them, just like he had just done to Moses. The law is God's way of saying, look, this is who I am, and this is how the world works, and this is how you can flourish inside of that world. I've made this universe, and I've called it good, and there is a way to live in this world that brings good to you and good to the people all around you, and the law shows you how to do it. So Moses, the law, that stuff is pretty great. It's glorious. But you and I, and every other human being in the world, <laughs> we all know that it has a downside. As glorious and as amazing as it is, it has a downside. It's a built-in downside. It's a purposeful downside. It's built into the system, but it is a downside. And that is that God's moral law doesn't just show us who we're meant to be. It shows us very effectively that we are not those people yet. That's why, church, when we worship together <laughs> every time, we take time for confession of sin and assurance of pardon. Because when we do that, we're acknowledging that we are not the people that we were meant to be. And we can't be on our own. <laughs> And we need forgiveness and we need help and the power to change. And this is why Paul in this passage calls this really glorious, really amazing thing the ministry of death in verse 7. The ministry of condemnation in verse 9. He's not denigrating it. He's just telling the truth about it. And that's Paul's second really very simple point. As glorious as that was, one of its built-in effects, one of its purposeful effects was to make people like you and me long for something even better and even more glorious. Paul calls it the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of glory, the ministry of the Spirit. So I think it's really important for me to say this. We don't become the people that God meant us to be 
by keeping the law. We do not become the people that God meant us to be by piling up a lot of good things and avoiding all of the wrong ones. And thank God for that. <laughs> thank God for that because people like us usually don't make it to noon. I guess I'll just say people like me <laughs> usually don't make it to noon without failing to love God and neighbor. And that's on my best days. And if you think that sounds off, you know, if you think that doesn't sound right in your life, then here's my encouragement. Just keep a journal tomorrow and see. You know, write down how many times you look down on someone else or you think poorly about someone else because of something they said or they did. You know, write down how many times you artfully reframe a story to make yourself look right and good. Write down how many times you withhold kindness from someone. Because even if it was a long time ago, they hurt you. Just write those things down, you know? You get the idea. I mean, if people like you and me, if we'll do that with open hands, if we'll do that with an open heart, then we're going to get a really good sense for why Paul called Moses' work in giving us the law a ministry of condemnation. But we're also going to say what we should say, which is, man, I need something more. And I need something better. <laughs> I need help. And Paul is all in on that something more. He is all in on that something better. He says in verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. <laughs> and when he says that, he means he's bold and the other apostles with him are bold. This is a reminder that he's defending himself and that he has a role in his friends' lives as the very first one who came to tell them about something more and something better. He is the one who came to them to tell them about Jesus. His life may be full of suffering. He may not be a great public speaker. He doesn't come back by the powerful and the beautiful. He doesn't come bearing the values of the powerful and the beautiful, but he does have this. I'm the one who first told you about who Jesus is. And then he returns to that part of the story about the veil. He says in verse 13 that the, the real reason that Moses had to cover up his face was not really because it was shining, it wasn't really about the law. He says the real problem was with the people that he came to. <laughs> That's Paul's flourish on this story, something we wouldn't know if he didn't tell us. He says Moses covered his face so they may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. He doesn't just mean that Moses' face would eventually stop glowing. He means the proper end of the law. It was just doing its job. It was just pointing past itself to the day when the better would come. And that better was Jesus who perfectly fulfilled the law and then stepped in and took your place and mine for not perfectly fulfilling it. The great exchange Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness and he gives us his life. <laughs> but Paul says it's possible to miss that. 
it is uh, possible to look past it. It's possible even to look past it on purpose. As Paul says, uh, their minds were hardened. To this day, whenever Moses is read, there is a veil lying over their hearts. Paul, listen, Paul isn't talking about these people as if he was something other. I mean, ethnically, for sure, he is one of the people to whom the law came. He's talking about himself, but there is much more than that going on here. Because Paul spent years and years and years of his adult life cultivating a veiled heart. He spent years of his adult life cultivating and nurturing a veiled heart. He didn't just want to look away from Jesus or look past Jesus. He wanted to wipe out the memory of Jesus from this earth the only way he knew how. And that was by eliminating everyone who followed him. That was Paul's life. And then one day the resurrected Jesus came to Paul. (laughs) He met Paul where Paul was in all of that mess and trouble and violence. And as Paul says, he took the veil off. It's like Jesus said, Paul, I'm here. (laughs) Look at me. I am the better and I am the more that Moses and the law were pointing to all along because what it could never do I can. I can give you forgiveness and I can give you life. And at long last, I can give you the freedom to be who you were made to be for the good of the world. And church, that's how uh, you and I become the people that we were made to be. (laughs) As Paul writes it, as one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When we turn away from old ways of living and we turn in faith to Jesus, we can finally see. We see the gracious forgiveness that he offers to us. We see the gracious uh, power and way to live a new life that he offers us in his resurrection and ascension. These are the great gifts that Jesus hands out to us. And when we see them and when we receive them, we see that they are evidence of his love for us. And that love calls out our own love and adoration. And church, that turning to Jesus and having that veil removed, that isn't just supposed to happen once, way, way back whenever we decided to follow Jesus. That turning back to Jesus is the rhythm and the shape of our whole Christian life. I don't think I could possibly say that enough. (laughs) The turning back to Jesus and seeing him really for who he is That is the shape and rhythm of our whole Christian life. And that's what Paul means when he ends in verse 18 with another flourish on that strange and beautiful story from Exodus 34. It's almost as if Paul is saying, imagine what it would have been like. Just just try to think about what it would have been like if they weren't terrified when they saw his face, if they weren't terrified with the reflected glory of God on Moses' face. He says, imagine, imagine what it would, would have been like if he didn't have to cover his face. Imagine what it would have been like if they could have just stared at the glory of God. Well, Paul says, you don't have to imagine it. Because that is what life in the spirit is. We all with unveiled face, right now, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God are being transformed into that image from one degree of glory to another. (laughs) 
Church, we are becoming like what we love. We are becoming like who we love. We are being made to look like Jesus for the good of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would use whatever it is in our lives that you're going to use, whatever it takes um, to help us to, to see again clearly with an unveiled face, to apprehend the weight of your being, to apprehend the weight of your love for people like us, that you would step in and take our place and give us life and meaning and purpose and freedom. Father, help us to be a people who are constantly turning back to that source of life, who are constantly turning back to Jesus and rejecting any other way of finding meaning and life and power and freedom in this world. Do this so that we can grow up in our faith. Do this so that you can change us into his image. Do this so that through us you can love this broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.